Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 1 to 4 this morning. Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 1, there the word of Christ says this. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, according to his own will. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today, Lord, asking, Lord, that you would give to us, Lord, eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart to understand your word. Lord, may we not be those who neglect your word, Lord, those who reject it, but rather we pray that we would be attentive to the word of Christ, Lord, knowing that it has been delivered to us by you, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, may we not take lightly your word, but rather with great seriousness and sober-mindedness. Lord, be attentive to its teaching, and Lord, be quick to obey. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us today, Lord, to understand, Lord, that you would give to us, Lord, your wisdom and your understanding, Lord, that your spirit would lead and guide us in all that is said, and Lord, in all that is heard. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, we mentioned in our introduction to the book of Hebrews that the occasion for the writing of this book is the temptation to abandon Jesus Christ because of the presence of sufferings, right? Their opponents are seeking to lead them astray. They're seeking to lead them away from the straight and narrow path to a different path other than faith in Jesus Christ. And the apostle is seeking to put them on the right path, right? To keep them on the right path. They need stability. Their faith is being shaken. They're stumbling here and there. And the apostle through the letter is seeking to bring them back to stability so that they do not falter and fall away from the faith. To do this, he is stating wonderful, glorious doctrines like we read in chapter 1. And he's interposing these with warning passages, telling them of the great danger of falling away from Christ. We've just concluded the first chapter that clearly displayed the greatness of Christ by revealing many truths about him. And then he further expanded this greatness of Christ by showing his superiority in contrast to the angels. The apostle clearly displayed that Jesus Christ is far superior to angels since he has inherited a more excellent name than they have because God the Father has never addressed any of his angels as his son, as his own son, but he did address Jesus Christ with these titles. Now in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, we come to the first warning passage of the book of Hebrews. And the apostle will warn us of the great dangers of neglecting the gospel of Jesus Christ, right? And we cannot be guilty of either neglecting or rejecting. We cannot be guilty of either. We cannot neglect Jesus Christ by being disinterested, by being distracted, by being preoccupied with other things, nor can we reject our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by turning away from Him and going back to the world or to some other way of salvation or to some vain, false religion. So let's look beginning in Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll begin in verse 1 this morning. There it says, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. Here he says, for this reason. So we must ask, for what reason? And that is because of everything he has previously said concerning the superiority of Christ. He is the divine Son of God come in human flesh. He is the one who has appeared in these last days and has spoken to us the very word of God. And he is superior to angels and to all creation. He has inherited a name more excellent than any angel. He and he alone is the Son of God. He and he alone has been exalted to the position of highest honor. 
He and he alone is seated at the right hand of God the Father, waiting for his enemies to be made a footstool for his feet. And he is the one speaking to us today. God has spoken through his Son. And he has done so with finality. He's done so with clarity. Through his Son, God has inundated the world with spiritual truths from heaven. And since Christ is greater than angels, then whatever he taught, whatever he displayed in his life, in his ministry, in his teaching, is of greater authority and greater weight than any angel. Since he is superior to angels, then whatever comes to us by way of divine revelation through him should get our attention. When he is speaking to us, we should sit up, we should listen, we should pay attention to what Jesus is saying. And that's why he says... For this reason, we must pay much closer attention. We must pay much closer attention, he says, to what we have heard. People pay attention to many things in this world. People listen and hear many things. Do we not have thousands of voices vying for our attention each and every day, telling us how we should live, telling us what we should believe, telling us how we should raise our families, telling us what values that we should adopt for our own life. There are many voices saying many things in the world today. But we should listen to one voice, and that is the voice of Christ. We must pay close attention to what Christ is saying to us because the Word of God is dealing with salvation. We're dealing with issues of eternal importance. The Bible is not an instruction manual for how to modify your car. The Bible is not an instruction manual for you to have better self-esteem about yourself, to have more self-worth about how wonderful you are, to have more success in this present life. The Bible is dealing primarily with eternal issues, issues of eternal consequence, issues related to salvation, issues of heaven and hell. So when we approach the Bible, We should sober up, we should straighten up, we should rid our minds of the things of this world that so easily distract us, and we should listen carefully and pay close attention to what is being said. Didn't our teachers do this in school? Didn't they used to tell us to sit up, right, to look up, right, whenever a topic of great importance was being taught? They wanted to get our attention, they wanted to make sure that we were listening, that we needed to pay close attention, We do this in the home with our own children. When we want to tell them something important, we want to make sure that we have their attention, that they are listening to us attentively, that they are paying close attention to what we are saying. That's what the apostle is doing here. He's placing before them the weightiness of the matters at hand. These are very serious issues. These are eternal issues. Your eternal destiny, my eternal destiny, The eternal destiny of my wife and my children is dependent upon the truths revealed in the Bible concerning salvation. And if I don't pay attention and listen carefully to these things, if I neglect them or I reject them, then I'm going to go to hell and I'm going to send my wife and children there as well because I'm not going to be teaching them diligently the things of God. That's what the apostle is doing. He's saying, you better listen. Listen to what I'm telling you. Listen to the word of Christ, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 8, verse 18, it says, Therefore take care how you listen. For whoever has, to him shall more be given. And whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. Take care, he says, how you listen. When we hear the Word of God, when we read the Word of God, when we meditate on the Word of God, it is very important that we pay attention to what is being said. Many people hear the Word of God, but not everyone who hears the Word of God benefits from the Word of God. Not everyone who hears the Word of God pays close attention to what is being said, to what they have heard. Matthew chapter 13 illustrates this point. Matthew 13 18 to 23, teaches that not everyone who hears pays close attention, that there are some who approach the Bible in a careless, even a cavalier way. 
Matthew 13, verse 18. This is the explanation of the parable of the sower. He says, Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. The one on whom seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no firm root in himself, but is only temporary. And when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, and who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Here, there are four kinds of people represented in the parable. Four kinds of people who all hear the word of God. Three produce no fruit. Only one of them produces good fruit. Three of them did not pay close attention. And only one of them did pay close attention. And here, specifically, one of these soils, the one on the rocky ground, what is it that caused the word to be unfruitful in those people? It's the presence of suffering, the presence of persecution. Well, what is he dealing with here with the Hebrew Christians? It's the presence of suffering and persecution that is causing them, tempting them to drift away, to turn away from it, to fall away, and not to bear good fruit, not to bear the fruits of perseverance in the things of God. The apostle does not want his hearers to be like the first three soils. He does not want them to be like the second soil that falls away because of the presence of persecution, but rather he wants them to be good soil, like the fourth one that bore much fruit. Here, why is it so important that we pay attention? Notice what he says at the end of verse 1. So that we do not drift away from it. If we do not pay close attention, this is what will happen. If we approach the word of God with a cavalier attitude, then we will drift away. And it can happen. It has happened before, and it will happen again. It has even happened in our own congregation that people have drifted away from these things. And we better make sure that it does not happen to us, either through deliberate rejection or through carelessness. This is the great danger. Because if we drift away fully and finally, then we will be condemned. Now, there is a sense where we all drift here and there, temporarily, right? The Christian life is a life of sanctification, which entails overcoming sin, which means that there's still the presence of sin because of the flesh in each and, one, in every one of us. And whenever we sin, we are drifting away. We're drifting away from the straight and narrow path at least temporarily. But we have to be renewed through repentance. We have to come back to the path and not continue to drift away from it. If we refuse to repent, then we will continue to drift. And those that continue to drift and who do not repent, eventually it will shipwreck their faith and they will be ruined. And what keeps us from drifting away? What is our anchor that keeps us steadfast? It's the word of Christ, the word of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and are paying close attention to it. We must consider how important the word of Christ is and not approach it with a casual, with a carefree, with a cavalier attitude, with a take-it-or-leave-it attitude like so many people do today. Verse 2, why is this so important? Verse 2, for if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty. Here he states that the word spoken through angels proved unalterable. Here the word that he is referring to is the law of Moses, and how when God delivered the law to Moses, when he spoke to him, he communicated to his people. And when God revealed his holy will to Israel at Mount Sinai, he appeared in a theophany to the people. A theophany being a visible manifestation on the mountain of the glory of God. 
this is what they saw. They saw the cloud. They heard the thunder. They saw the lightning. They felt the earthquake. God appeared in this terrifying way to the people, so much so that when the people saw it, what did they say to Moses? We don't want to go up there. You go up there. You talk to God. And then you come and tell us what is his will. This is how God appeared to the people. And when God manifested himself in this way to Israel, he also appeared there to them with myriads of angels. Thousands of angels attended God's delivering of the law to Moses. Let's see this proven. Deuteronomy 33. Deuteronomy chapter 33. Deuteronomy 33, verse 2. This is Moses speaking. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran. He came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. At his right hand there was flashing lightning for them. There he came from the midst of 10,000 holy ones. These 10,000 holy ones is not referring to the people of Israel, but he's referring to angels, 10,000 holy angels there accompanying God on the mountain. And this is the interpretation that is given in the New Testament as well. Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 7, verses 51 to 53. Here, when Stephen is um, rebuking his own people because of their stiffness of heart, or their hard-heartedness, and they're stiff-necked, he mentions this reality. Acts 7.51, You men who are stiff-necked and are uncircumcised in heart and ears, and always resisting the Holy Spirit, you're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? They killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels, yet did not Keep it. There, the law that they received, in a sense, they didn't receive it truly. They say that they received it, but they're liars. It was, he said, ordained by angels. Ordained by angels. And then one final passage would be Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3, verse 19. It says, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. So the angels were there present at the giving of the law of Moses, and their presence there was to add another confirmation to the people of the importance of the message that they were receiving. The angels helped deliver the message to Moses, who then instructed the people, and their presence was to give them Sober-mindedness, to show them the importance, to show them that they needed to listen to the word that was being delivered to them. And here in Hebrews chapter 2, he says that this message delivered by the agency of angels was unalterable. No one on earth had the authority to alter a single word that God had commanded. This is the way the law of Moses came to the people. They could not say, okay, God, we agree with nine of the Ten Commandments, but commandment number eight, we don't agree with it. You know, we think this is going too far, and we want to make an alteration to that commandment, and then we're going to submit our alteration to you, and then you get back with us and tell us if that's okay with you. Is that the way that it worked? Was this an interaction between God and the people? It wasn't an, even, an interaction between God and Moses or God and the angels. They were simply receiving what God told them to receive. And it was unalterable. It was given as a commandment that could not be changed. It could not be altered by Moses, by any other prophet, by anyone on earth. Not that Moses or any of the prophets would want to alter the word of God. And also, he joins with that, every transgression or disobedience of the law of Moses received a just penalty. The law of Moses included both just laws that define for us good and evil, right? Righteousness and wickedness. We have just laws in the law of Moses. And they are stated both negatively and they are stated in the positive sense as well. So there are just laws that clearly reveal to us 
what God expects, and then accompanying those just laws are just penalties for the transgression of those laws. The violation of some laws results in execution. If you shed the blood of man, by man shall your blood be shed. Public execution was the penalty that accompanied murder. Other laws resulted in fines. Other laws resulted in beatings in various ways. Whatever it was, the point being that there were clear laws that delineated to the people how they were supposed to live, and there were just penalties that accompanied each and every law. And these were not suggestions. They were commandments from God that were to be taken very seriously. And this was the attitude the people were to have towards the law of Moses. And when God appeared to them in this way, in the theophany with the myriads of angels, it was to show to them, to communicate to the people the gravity of what was taking place, to put the fear of God in them so that when they saw it, they would understand those things. And it did do that temporarily because the people said to Moses, we don't want God speaking directly to us. You go up there and let him speak to you and then you come tell us his will. And God said that that was good for them to be thinking in that way. And he actually says that they had a heart like this at all times. So it did produce in them the sight, what they saw, some temporary sobriety and seriousness. And they even said and confessed, all that the Lord says we will do. They didn't mean it because after all, they violated it and broke it and they perished there in the wilderness. But what accompanied the giving of the law was this sight with the angels, with the giving of the law that was clear to them that they must pay close attention to what was being said. Now the comparison, the connection to verse 3. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Here the comparison. If the people under the law of Moses casually approached the law of Moses that was delivered through angels... If they had a cavalier approach and said, yeah, we know that God said do not murder. We know that God said do not commit adultery. We know that God said do not commit idolatry. But, you know, he's all about grace and love, right? God is all about grace. He's all about love. We don't have to worry about those things. It's all going to be okay with us. If they have that kind of attitude, that kind of approach to the law of Moses, a take-it-or-leave-it approach, which caused them to not take it seriously and then led them to violate the commandments, then what was going to happen to them? The punishment. The punishment, the penalty, would be given for their crime. They would have to pay for their crime. Well, if that's what happened under the law of Moses, then what about us? What will happen to us if we neglect the great salvation that has been revealed through the Son of God? If they did not escape punishment for neglecting the word delivered through angels, then how will we escape if we reject the word delivered by the Son of God, who according to chapter 1 is much superior to any angels. He has a more excellent name than any of them. We will not escape. So what's the conclusion we need to draw? Just as they needed to pay attention, so we also need to pay attention. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. He's not saying that they didn't need to pay attention. No, they needed to pay attention. Both of us need to pay attention to what we have heard. Right? Isn't that true? If the king sends his emissary to go and relay his edict to the people, then the people should listen to the emissary of the king. Whoever his ambassador is, whoever is the one who is coming to them, relaying to them the edict, the will of the king. They must take it very seriously because that emissary represents he is speaking on behalf of the king. And they should listen. And if they don't listen, then there's going to be repercussions for their disobedience. But what if the king himself comes to the people? What if he shows up in person to the people and delivers in his own person with his own mouth his edict to them personally? Then they must pay much closer attention 
There's an even greater level of gravity, of seriousness, of solemnity that must be in the people because the king is in their presence and he is speaking to them his very will. Well, that's the situation here. The law of Moses, delivered by God through angels to Moses and then to the people. And those people who received it were to pay close attention to that message. And it was unalterable. And every transgression received a just penalty. But in these last days, God has spoken in His Son. And when God spoke to, through His Son, He did not use angels. He did not use the prophet Moses. But He spoke directly to the people. When God came in the Son, He came in human flesh, and He spoke directly to the people. And they saw it with their own eyes, and they heard it with their own ears. And that is the message that we have received. So we better pay much closer attention. The King of heaven has come down to earth and he has spoken to us in the person of Jesus Christ. His word is unalterable and those who transgress his word will also receive a just penalty for what they have done. And that's what he says here. How will we escape the judgment of God? What is the just penalty for those who neglect the gospel of Jesus Christ? It is eternity in hell, the lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone. And how will we escape the fires of hell if we neglect the salvation of God found in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ? It is impossible for us to escape because there is no other way of salvation. He is the only way. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 23, 33, he says to the Pharisees, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Isn't that what our apostle is saying? How will you escape the sentence of hell if you do not listen to the gospel of Jesus Christ? If one rejects the salvation of God through Jesus Christ, then how can that man be saved? How can he avoid the fires of hell? How will he escape eternal judgment and condemnation? Aren't all men born by nature children of wrath? Aren't we born in sin? Aren't we born dead in our trespasses and sins? We are by nature children of wrath, just like the rest of mankind, right? None is righteous, it says in Romans chapter 3. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one fears God. There is no fear of God in man. This is the way it is. And because of that, what is the just penalty of God that hangs over each and every man? It is eternal damnation, eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. And there is only one way of escape that God has provided by which we can escape the wrath to come. And that is through salvation, through the forgiveness of sins, through a sacrifice that God has provided to take our sins away. And there is only one sacrifice, and that sacrifice is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it only is through faith in Christ that our sins can be forgiven. Jesus says in John 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. No man, no Buddhist man, no Hindu man, no Muslim man, they cannot come to God. They cannot be in a right relationship with God except through Jesus Christ. And that necessitates a proper understanding of his person and of his ministry. Because if we have a corrupt understanding of the person and work of Christ, such as the Muslims, such as the Hindus, it will not result in salvation. We have to have the right understanding. The understanding that our apostle is teaching us from chapter 1. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, they said there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Salvation is in no one else. Yet today, many people say that there are many ways of salvation. There are multiple paths by which we can be saved, such as Oprah Winfrey, who's a liar. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Why would we listen to her? She's a TV show host. Why would we take anything she says seriously? But people do. Right? People do. And they listen to others who tell them, no, there are many ways to salvation. 
Right? There are many ways within the Christian camp. You can be Roman Catholic. You can be Protestant. You can be Eastern Orthodox. It doesn't matter. And there's many ways even in terms of false religions. You can be a Mormon. Right? You can be a Jehovah's Witness. You can be a Buddhist, a Hindu. All that matters is if you're sincere. But is that what the Bible teaches? Is that what Jesus taught? No. Is that what his apostles taught? No. They said salvation in no one else. No other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We must be saved through the true person and work of Jesus Christ. Then in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God. One God. And there is one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. There is only one true God. That means all other gods are false gods. The gods of the Greeks, the gods of the Romans were false gods. The gods of the Hindus, the gods of the Buddhists, there are millions and billions of gods. They're all false gods. The god of the Muslims is a false god, right? Because they don't believe in the true nature and understanding of God as revealed in the Holy Bible. There's only one true God. And there's only one mediator that God has provided by which a man can come into a right relationship with God to have their sins forgiven, to be reconciled to God, to have peace with God. And who is that only mediator by which we can approach the true and living God? Only through Jesus Christ. Only one mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. So if we are going to be reconciled to God, it entails, it necessitates salvation. Salvation must occur in order for us to escape the judgment of God. God has provided only one way of salvation. So if a man neglects the only way of salvation that God has provided, then how will he escape the sentence of hell? He won't. That's the conclusion he's drawing. He's making his argument so tight that there's no other conclusion you can draw. It is impossible to escape except through Jesus Christ. But how can we know this is true? Right? How can we know? How can we trust that this is indeed the case? Because aren't we pinning all of our hopes on this truth, on this reality, that salvation can be found only through Jesus Christ? And everyone else is saying that they have salvation. They have the way. They have the understanding. They have the knowledge of God. Everyone is saying that. Everyone believes they're right on everything. So how can we know that we are right, that we are correct, that our interpretation, our belief, our understanding is the right understanding? Well, know what he's, notice what he says. It was first spoken through the Lord. The Lord himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, he came down from heaven. The Son of God incarnate, God in human flesh, dwelt among us, and he declared to us truths concerning salvation. Jesus Christ said directly to the people. Didn't Jesus say that in John 14, 6? No one comes to the Father but through me. He didn't say that to Moses and then say, Moses, you go tell the people. He didn't say it to an angel and say, you angel, go tell that to Moses, and then Moses will tell it to the people. Though Moses and the angels would never contradict that. They taught the same truth. But Jesus came and declared this truth in his own person with his own lips, and they heard him say it. No one comes to the Father but through me. He spoke it directly to the people, directly to us, concerning the way of salvation. And then this testimony from the Lord he says, was confirmed to us by those who heard. Those who heard it are telling us this is indeed what he said. Isn't that what's happening in Acts chapter 4 and in 1 Timothy chapter 2? The Lord said at first, no one comes to the Father but through me, and then the apostles are confirming this truth when they are repeating it and saying the exact same thing. Salvation can be found in no one else. There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. They are confirming the truthfulness, the veracity of what Christ has said and giving us further confirmation of the reality of this salvation. The holy apostles, they were eyewitnesses. Eyewitnesses to these things. They heard the Lord speak. They saw his life. They confirm the truthfulness of his testimony to us so that we can have great confidence that we're not believing a lie. And none of them contradict. They all are saying the exact same thing. 
whether it's Peter in Acts chapter 4 or whether it's Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And what they're saying also agrees with what the prophet said and what our Lord Jesus Christ said. So we have many, many witnesses who are all telling us the exact same thing, eyewitnesses to these events. If that happened, if there was some incident that happened, a, a car wreck out on the highway, and there were 10 witnesses, and all 10 witnesses are telling us the exact same details of what happened, what transpired, wouldn't we have confidence and certainty that this is indeed what happened? We have all of these people, they're not drunkards, they're not on drugs, right? They have a rational, sane mind, and they're all telling us the exact same thing. So we would say, yes, this is the case. And if that came to a court of law, and it was brought in that case, even in a court of law, it would stand. It would have standing because it is testifying to the truth. Well, this is what is happening here but an even greater testimony because it is not some random strangers out on the street who are telling us and confirming these things to us, but it is the apostles of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who were with him from the very beginning of John's ministry and then all throughout the ministry of Jesus, and they saw it with their own eyes, and we know that their testimony is true. Isn't that what the apostle John says at the end of the book of John? He has seen these things. I, the one who is testifying, has seen these things, and we know his testimony is true. He is not lying. He is not deceiving us. He was not misunderstanding Jesus in any way, taking it out of context. No, they understood exactly what Jesus Christ was saying. This is what liberals and false teachers say. That no, Jesus never claimed to be God. He never claimed to be the only way of salvation. But the disciples were religious fanatics. And then they made him into something that he wasn't. But no, they aren't religious fanatics. They are sound men. Sound men with a sound mind, led by the Holy Spirit of God, who are telling us that this is indeed what happened in the person of, and work of Christ. They were eyewitnesses to these things. They heard the Lord speak. They saw his life. They saw the miracles. They confirmed the truthfulness of his testimony to us, so that we can have great confidence that we're not believing a lie. We're not pinning our hope on a fantasy, on a fiction, but rather on the very truth. Every religion claims to have true knowledge of salvation. So how can we know? How can we be certain? How can we have confidence that this way of salvation is true and the only way? We have many witnesses, eyewitnesses, who have corroborated the veracity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. 2 Peter 1, 16 says, For we do not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made known to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word made more sure, to which you do well to pay attention, as to a lamp shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy ever was made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. There, he says, clearly, we're not following cleverly devised tales. The disciples, the prophets, were not religious fanatics who were geniuses who came up with cleverly devised tales to dupe the people and to promote religion in order to control them and to get money from them and to start some great movement. That's not the case at all. They're telling us the truth. They're telling us things that really did indeed happen. These are not cleverly devised tales, but they were eyewitnesses to all these things. Also, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, concerning the resurrection, isn't that a very important article of our faith? The resurrection of Jesus Christ? Doesn't everything depend on it? Didn't the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 say, if there is no resurrection, 
we're found misrepresenting God. We have no hope. We've believed in vain. Everything we say is, is a fiction and fairy tale. But how do we know that Jesus rose from the dead? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. There. He appeared. He appeared. He appeared. We saw him. We're telling you the truth. 500 men saw him. Many of them are still alive. Go ask them yourself if these things are true. And they will verify that I am telling you the truth. And I'm not lying to you. I am not making this up. Over 500 witnesses telling us that Jesus died, that he rose from the dead, and they saw him personally, visibly. Right? They're not talking about some vision or some dream, but they visibly saw him in his own person with their eyes. They saw the resurrected Lord. They saw it. And now they're telling us that it happened and telling us the significance of these events. They're not just telling us about the fact itself, but they're telling us why it's important, why it's necessary, how it relates to salvation and how we can be made right with God. And all of this was done in the open, in plain, not in secret, not in dark, dingy corners, but plainly in the open. That's how Jesus' enemies acted. They came to him in the middle of the night, and he rebukes them for that, right? He taught every day in the open, in the public. And if you have a just criticism against me, then bring it up in the open. Why are you doing it in dark, dingy corners? Why are you doing it in the middle of night? But this is the hour of darkness, and you are children of darkness, so it is according to your own nature and your own character. This is the way Jesus Dealt openly, plainly, and this is the way his apostles are dealing, and the prophets as well, in open, in plain sight, telling us this is indeed the will of God. This in contrast to false religions. False religions, who they claim to have their visions from God, they claim to see angels, they claim to see miracles from God, but it's always done in private, in secret. There's no witnesses to these things. We're supposed to just... Take their word for it, such as Joseph Smith, the founder of the cult of Mormonism, who was by himself in the woods. Supposedly, he saw a series of visions. Supposedly, was visited by an angel. Supposedly, found golden tablets that no one had ever seen. And we still don't know where they're at today. They've been lost. Alas, he was the only witness to these things. Done in secret, in the forest, all alone by himself, no witnesses, just the word of a madman. And we're supposed to take his word for it and put all of our hope and faith and confidence in the word of Joseph Smith, a polygamist. Or what about the so-called prophet Muhammad? So-called, because he's not a prophet, he's a false prophet. Also, supposedly visited by the angel Gabriel in a cave, in the wilderness, all alone by himself, and there receive new revelations from God. And we're supposed to receive all of this without the evidence of two or three witnesses, with no corroboration, again, only the testimony of a madman who was himself a pedophile. And we're supposed to listen to him and pin all of our hopes in salvation upon the testimony of this one singular individual. Is that the way the gospel is revealed to us? No. It's not. It's revealed in ways that are in the open, that are done in public, that are corroborated by many eyewitnesses. Though God himself doesn't have to do that. His testimony is enough. But God did it this way so that we might have confidence, so that we might know for certain that the gospel is true and that it is the only way of salvation and that we who have fled to Jesus for refuge, that we have a sure anchor for our soul, one that is completely confident and that we can know that we have salvation. It was confirmed by many witnesses, first declared by the Lord, 
then confirmed by many witnesses. Then verse 4. More confirmation of the truthfulness of the gospel. Who else testifies? God. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Not only do we have the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, not only do we have the confirmation of the eyewitnesses, but in addition, God the Father also put his seal of approval on the gospel of Jesus Christ through his Holy Spirit. The Father has testified of the truthfulness of the word revealed through the Son. And how did the Father testify? Notice he says, first, by signs and wonders. The ministry of Jesus and then the ministry of the apostles was accompanied with many signs and wonders. Visible manifestations of God's power that give his stamp of approval on the person and work of Jesus Christ. The word and the miracles always go hand in hand. The word interprets the miracles, and then the miracles are there to confirm the word. And this is unlike the so-called miracle workers today, whose ministries often, always, contradict and undermine the very word of God, and who also claim to do miracles. But where are their miracles done? There's no way to prove it. They're not done open. They're not done in, in plain sight. There's no way to test it, to see. We're supposed to just take their word for it. But the true miracles that were performed by Jesus and his apostles, they were plain. They were evident. They were clear to everyone. This man has been blind in John chapter 9. His whole life, he was born blind. And now he can see. They brought his parents in. Testify to us. Is this your son? And he's, they say, yes, that is our son. Yes, he was born blind. We see that now he can clearly see. We don't know how it happened. You ask him, he's of age. And then he's telling them, this is what indeed happened. You have this confirming the truthfulness of the event. They were signs in that the miracles were teaching spiritual truths to the people. When Jesus raised men from the dead, it was a sign that he can raise us from the dead spiritually. When he opened the eyes of those who are physically blind, it was a spiritual sign that he can open the eyes of those who are spiritually blind, right? When Jesus casts out demons from people, it is a sign that he can deliver us from the dominion of Satan, from the power of Satan. This is what the signs were for, to be signs, symbols, to show us, to testify to the spiritual truths. Because not all of us are blind physically. Not all of us are lepers physically. But all of us are blind spiritually. And all of us are lepers spiritually. And if Jesus can do this to the man physically, then he can do it for us spiritually as well. Which is easier to say to the man in Mark chapter 2. Rise, take up your bed, and walk, or your sins are forgiven. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. So that we would know it's a sign, the miracle there was a sign, that he has the power to forgive sins. This is the way the signs were given, to give and interpret and to understanding of spiritual truths. Also, he calls them wonders. They were wonders in that they're meant to cause the people to ponder, to think about what's happening, to spark their mind, their curiosity, their, them to examine right, what is happening before them. Like it says in Matthew chapter 8, 27, the men were amazed and said, what kind of a man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? The wonder that they saw, Jesus calming the storm, caused them to say, to start wondering, right? To examine it, to think about it, right? Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? That he must be more than a man. He must indeed be the son of God. It caused them to think about it. It aroused their mind to ponder these things. Also, they're called various miracles. Various miracles. The miracles show the mighty power of God because no man has the power to do these things. Only God can do a miracle. Now, God might do a miracle using a man or through a man, but the power must come from God. And if someone is doing this miracle in this way, then it is an attesting to the truthfulness of his words. 
They show the supernatural power of God at work in this world, and they are clearly beyond human ability. Only God can do these things, and they are clear testimony from God the Father of his approval of Jesus Christ and his teaching. This is as it says in John chapter 3. John chapter 3. This is Nicodemus, who at this point is not even a true believer, doesn't understand, but even he has this understanding. John 3 verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. We know that you are a teacher from God. And the reason we know it is because it is impossible for anyone to do these signs that you're doing that are obvious and plain. No one can do these things unless he's from God. The signs are a testimony from God, the miracle from God, that Jesus is indeed from him and we should listen to his word. And then also in John chapter 9, verse 30, we referenced this earlier, alluded to it. John chapter 9, verse 30. This was the man, the blind man, who was healed miraculously by Jesus. John 9, verse 30. The man answered and said to them, Well, here is an amazing thing. You do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He understood that this man could not do these things if he were not from God. Clear testimony. That's what the apostle is saying in Hebrews 2 verse 4. And then lastly, he says also, by gifts of the Holy Spirit. The various gifts of the Holy Spirit that he disperses in his church for the glory of God and for the good and the building up of the people. These gifts of the Spirit are evidence that we have believed the true gospel because only the Spirit can give them. And he gives them to those that he dwells within, those that he has filled who are true believers. Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 8. Romans 12, verse 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function... So we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each of us is to exercise them accordingly. If prophecy, according to the proportion of his faith. If service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness." These are gifts given according to his will, according to the will of God through the Holy Spirit. He gives to each a measure of faith, and he gives to each a a gift according to his will that we are to use and exercise in the church for the benefit of others. All of these things are happening according to the will of God, his will, not the will of any man. And these things happen according to his word. The gifts, the miracles are always used according to the word of God. They serve and support the word of God, and they are never intended to detract us from the word of God, which is how it happens in many churches that really emphasize spiritual gifts. They emphasize them to take us away from the word of God. But does the spirit of God do that? No. He always uses them to point us to the word of God, right? Because the word of God is where faith is found. God's word and God's wonders never contradict one another, but are always in perfect harmony. 
So we have many witnesses. We have much evidence. We have the testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ who came down from heaven in human flesh and who has spoken to us. We have the confirmation of his words by the holy apostles who have testified to us of what he did, what he said, that these things indeed are true. Then we have the verification of God by signs and wonders, by miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. So the evidence is clear. The evidence is overwhelming. The evidence is insurmountable. It is beyond any refutation. God has confirmed overwhelmingly that salvation can be found only in His Son. So we better listen to Him. We better pay close attention to what He is saying. And the gospel, just as the law of Moses, is also unalterable. And just as the law of Moses... Those who do not obey the gospel, those who transgress it, will also receive a just penalty for their sin. And that just penalty is the lake of fire. So how can we neglect so great a salvation? How will we escape if we do not pay attention? So what should we do? We must pay much closer attention. We must listen to the Son of God. We must believe in Him. We must hold fast to our confession, firm till the end. We must heed the word of Christ and not take it lightly and not have a take it or leave it approach to the word of Christ. As he says in Hebrews 10, 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Let us hold fast firm without wavering. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and Lord, we thank you that, Lord, while you might have justly left us in our own sins, Lord, left us to our own devices, Lord, left us under your judgment and under your wrath, we thank you, Father, that you were pleased in your kindness, Lord, because of your great love and mercy, Lord, to choose for yourself a people. Lord, and to redeem them. And Lord, to do all that is necessary to accomplish their salvation. Lord, we thank you that you have sent your own son into the world. That he was born of a virgin. Lord, that he was born of the law. Lord, in order to redeem those who are under the law. That we might receive the adoption as sons. Lord, we thank you that He lived a perfect life, that he went and he died on the cross for our sins, and that you have raised him for our justification. Lord, we thank you as well that you have raised him and that you have seated him there in heavenly places at your right hand, and that he is there as our intercessor, Lord, interceding for his people, Lord, for your saints. Lord, that you would do this for us. Lord, who are by nature your enemies. Lord, by nature we are dead in our trespasses and sins, that we lived, Lord, in rebellion against you. And yet in your kindness, in your love and mercy, Lord, you have raised us and seated us with Christ in heavenly places in order that you might show, Lord, the greatness of your power and your grace and mercy, Lord, for all eternity in those who have received your salvation. Father, we thank you for this, that you have provided this only way of salvation. And Lord, we pray that, Lord, that would be a very sobering reality to us. Lord, may it always be on our mind that without Christ, we have no hope. Lord, without him, Lord, we have no access to you. It is only through him that we may ascend to the hill of the Lord, that we might be made right and purified in your sight. And so, Father, we pray that, Lord, we would not take lightly the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, that we would not have a a carefree and a cavalier approach to your word or to this message of salvation, but that we would pay much closer attention to what we have heard. Lord, you have given to us so many proofs. Lord, so much evidence for why we should believe your word and believe the gospel, and we should not 
be distracted by, Lord, any false religion or any philosophy that comes from man. So, Father, may we have this confidence. Lord, may we be steadfast and immovable. Lord, may we hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering because we know that you are faithful. And, Father, we pray that you would keep us, Lord, in your hand and that, Lord, no one would snatch us away from you. So, Father, may you keep us on that straight and narrow way. We ask that you would keep us from drifting away, that when we do, Lord, that you would seek us out and that you would bring back your lost sheep, and that, Lord, we would press on until we reach the kingdom of heaven. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.